السلام عليك زين الأنبياء السلام عليك رب العالمين صلى الله على سيدنا محمد أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين والصحابة الأكرمين وتابعينهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وعلينا معهم فيهم برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين so we will keep going and continue to study what we can from this very important book of Imam Ghazali, his book on knowledge. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala benefit us, inshallah ta'ala, and to open up our minds and to internalize this knowledge. And even though this knowledge is enjoyable to learn, all knowledge, once that you cultivate the desire to study within yourself, is enjoyable to learn. Um, it's enjoyable, however, it also that calls us to action. That knowledge calls to action, otherwise that it goes away. And one of the reasons people shun this type of knowledge is because it's not easy. It makes you confront your own reality. It makes you think twice about the things that you do. And ideally, someone learns this when they're young and puts everything in place so that they make all the right decisions so that everything goes well for the rest of their life. But that's rarely the case. Those people are very few and far between. Most of us, we learn this knowledge after we've already made decisions that have affected our lives. And that, as they say, uh, that the, the, the very best cure is prevention. Just take good care of your health so that you don't get sick. After you're already sick, to reverse a condition, it can be done at times, but it doesn't, it takes a little bit longer. And if someone has a that health related, that it's related, a diet related sickness, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to make those changes gradually. And then over an extended period of time, eventually things start to work out for you. Your lab results are a little bit better. Some of those symptoms that you that used to have start to go, it takes time. It's very similar. Um, so a lot of people shy away from this knowledge for that reason, um, because it makes you uncomfortable. But discomfort is great for the nafs. That's how it's supposed to be. Putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, gripping the nafs, making it do what you know that it needs to do, even though it doesn't like it is one of the most important thing of all. And they say one of the most, one of the uh, things that you have to do is swallow the bitterness of humiliation that comes through putting yourself in a position where you are studying. You have to swallow that pill. You have to go through that process. And sometimes that you have to lower yourself and it's not really humiliating, but it, you have to put yourself in a position where you learn and lower yourself. And they say that you don't ever really become learned until you learn from people from, who even have less knowledge than you. So the process never stops. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. So inshallah, uh, this session, uh, we are going to be 
looking at beneficial knowledge and attempting to distinguish it from blameworthy knowledge. And we will, inshallah, look at what Imam Ghazali presents or some of what he presents uh, in what he what is called the Fard Ain, the individual obligations, and the Fard Kifaya, the communal obligations. And because this is where he treats those discussions. And these are very important. Some of us might have heard this before, uh, but it always is good to hear it again and to remind ourselves, because even if we've heard something many times, that doesn't always mean that we are putting that piece of knowledge into practice. There could be gaps. What we need to think after we've already understood a piece of knowledge is how does it apply to us? And when it comes to obligatory knowledge, personally obligatory knowledge, we can definitely, if we think carefully, find things that, oh, I didn't ask about that. Oh, I should have thought about that. Oh, how does that relate to such and such a thing? We can definitely find those things uh, in our lives if we think very carefully. So, when Imam Ghazali in chapter two of the book on knowledge um, talks about beneficial knowledge and blameworthy knowledge, he starts with the discussion of the Fardain. And Alhamdulillah, I was very blessed from uh, early on in my Islam, uh, becoming Muslim in the community of Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and the uh, Mauritanian scholars who were visiting, um, they were very big on the Fardain. And they drilled that into us from the earliest that time of me becoming Muslim. And um, they were shocked when they came to America and they found that so many people had been Muslim for so long that they didn't know the Fardain. Now, keep in mind that they're from the Masuma tribe of West Africa, and um, their tribe is specifically noted for knowledge. And the fact that if you that hadn't that memorized the Quran and studied fiqh well, you're probably not going to get married, right, uh, in, in their culture. So for them, the, the standards are actually very high. Um, but um, that still, the point remains that they were a bit shocked that so many people were ignorant of certain aspects of knowledge that were necessary, that were necessary to know. So fard ain, it composes, it's composed of two words. Fard is obviously obli uh, an obligation, or here would be like obligatory. And then ain here relates to, it's the word for I, but here it's the individual. So the fard ain, you could just say that's individual it's the individual obligation or that which is personally obligatory i.e it is an obligation uh, obligation upon every mukallif every legally responsible person and this is the simple definition knowledge that every legally responsible person must learn fair enough but Imam Ghazali, what he does is he gives us a very beautiful breakdown of how to understand that. And of course, um, the different fuqaha, the different jurists will have slightly varied opinions on this. Uh, but Imam Ghazali's uh, opinion is, is uh, a very standard opinion and a, a, an opinion that, that makes it very easy to teach and to work with and bring into your own life. He essentially defines Fard'ain knowledge as Al-Ilmu al-ilmu al-wajib. 
And this translates as knowledge of how to perform an obligatory action. So that seems pretty simple, and it is. But its implications are what we really need to think about. So he goes on to say, whoever then knows the obligatory acts and the times in which they are incumbent, that they are obligatory, has acquired the knowledge that is obligatory. Okay. And what he does in the Ihya is that he starts from the very, very beginning. And as he tends to do, uh, that he talks about how um, that there's been a lot of different definitions of the Fardain, and he's always interested in clarity. So after mentioning many of their definitions, then he goes on to say is that this is really the best way to understand obligatory knowledge. And you can really see him here classically as a jurist, as a faqih and usuli, and a scholar of Islamic legal theory. And so he goes then to great detail. And he says, is that, say that there is a man who is, that has intellect and becomes Muslim. And either becomes Muslim or that he comes of age. He said the very first obligation upon him is to learn the meanings of the shahada. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. And he's of the opinion, even though it's not actually the standard Ash'ari opinion, but he's of the opinion that it's not an obligation upon him to buttress that with rational proofs. He says it suffices him to know the meaning of it and to believe it in an unwavering fashion in his heart. Okay. So he said, and then that he says that were this individual to live until Salat al-Dhuhr, he says then that he now has to learn how to pray Dhuhr and everything he needs to do in order to pray. So that he goes into a, a debate where he says that, that you know, is it, uh, is it an obligation upon him to learn that before the time comes in or not? The scholars will differ there. And it doesn't tend to work that way. It usually tends to work as uh, you just try to teach people as quick as you can what they need to know. But getting down to the technicalities that um, he says, but it might not be far-fetched to say that it's an obligation upon him to learn before the time comes in. But really, it's once Duhur enters. So he needs to learn how to pray. He needs to learn how to purify himself. The basics. And the basics of the Fard'ain can be learned in about three hours. The basic basics. At the most basic level. It can be learned very quickly. And what I mean at the most basic, basic level, of course. Someone might think, like, oh, what about such and such a book? Look, I thought that's all Fard'ain knowledge that takes a long time. At the most basic level. And um, there is a, an amazing book by the great-grandson of Imam Abdullah bin Ali al-Haddad called Al-Qawd al-Tam, where he mentions um, the bare minimum of what is required according to the various schools, taking the opinion that there's no talfiq and ibadat. And in order to make prayer easy for many of the people in the desert, 
regions of Hadramot to make it easy for them to pray. Because they realize that if you would impose any type of difficulty, that they might just leave prayer altogether. And I think this is something that's really important, though. Because although I really appreciate the emphasis of the Fardain, it has to be emphasized, there's no doubt. Um, we have to also emphasize, especially for converts, and especially for people getting back into their deen, but most, more so for converts, that as long as your ibadah and the act that you're doing falls within the realm of permissibility or validity of a valid scholarly opinion, it's accepted. And then you build from there. That's very different than teaching them only one school in that saying, if you don't do it exactly like this, it's invalid. And that causes the convert problems sometimes and creates a bit of dissonance. And, and the, the former way is how we should teach. Is that know that the sharia is vast. And yes, it requires knowledge, but especially in the beginning, as long as what they do is valid in one school, and then according to the Shafi opinion, even if it's a weak opinion in any school, even after you've done it, you can say retrospective, retroactively that that prayer that I prayed at such and such a time, oh, I realized that I did such and such a thing wrong, but I'm going to take such and such an opinion in such and such a school. Um, this is the important uh, in order to create that balance between the letter and the spirit of the law, the outward and the inward dimension. So they should know that as long as it conforms to that an opinion that is valid amongst the scholars, we don't ask them to repeat it. So we teach them the vastness of the Sharia as a starting point. And believe me, if you haven't had experience with commerce, you're not going to understand why I'm saying that. Uh, and I'm not trying to be that loose. No, this is what I believe to be that balanced in relation to this matter. And while we do that, we also then teach them. And when we teach them, we teach them from the very beginning that this is one of a multitude of ways, all of which are correct. And we also teach them as we encourage them to take the stronger opinion in any one school, that other opinions are also valid. Because this is the way of the people before us. This is how they used to teach this science, as opposed to that if you don't do the mashhur or the mu'tamid in the madhab, that you're disobeying Allah. No, the sharia is vast and it's merciful. And so we need to understand that the sharia simultaneously allows for multiple degrees of scrupulousness, of wara. And in the end, I believe 100% that you can have in one space people that are more conservative and people that are that a little bit more lenient. And those that are a little bit more lenient should respect those that are a little bit more conservative, just as those that are a little bit more conservative that should respect those that are that are a little bit more lenient. And what we want ultimately is balance and everybody should do what's best for them, but not make blanket statements and apply that to someone else because you don't know their state. And you have to be wise and think about the commonality as well that the community as a whole in doing what is best as we move forward as Muslims in these lands in teaching people how to be people of deen in a decontextualized reality. And alhamdulillah, increasingly that things are becoming easier and easier. 
but we don't have generations upon generations of people to look at. And I've mentioned this many times before, but it really is important in a traditional Muslim society. When you go to learn, you know what to do when, what to focus on when. And we don't have that here. And people get really confused. And one of the things that you see people happening, see happening is sometimes people end up doing too much and then it affects them negatively. And they can't remain doing that for too long. So then that they actually, there's, that it actually makes things worse than were they to have just approached it in a slightly different way to begin with. So the Fard Ain essentially is knowing how to perform an obligatory action and that when obligatory actions become obligations and then how to perform them. So this goes for the prayers, right? Luhur comes in, let's say that person comes of age in the morning or becomes a Muslim in the morning, the first thing is they learn the meanings of the shahadatain at the most basic level. Then they learn the basics of prayer and tahara. And then he says, if he lives to Ramadan, it then becomes an obligation for him to learn how to fast. If he has wealth, then he has to learn how to pay zakat on his wealth. If he goes to make hajj, he has to then learn the rulings of Hajj, and so forth and so on. So, if you think about this, you have the Fard Ain in the sense of learning it at kind of in the beginning where you learn it um, kind of in a series of classes. But then the Fard Ain knowledge, something could become Fard Ain if there's a new situation that you're in. So you're not married. Once you're thinking about getting married, you have to understand the rules of marriage. It's very serious. How many people have made that mistake? Because what matters in marriage is you pronouncing it, which includes, of course, you writing it. And you can't joke about these things. That were a man to say to his wife that she is divorced, jokingly, she's divorced. It's very serious. And unfortunately, people don't study and they get themselves into these problems. And then it reaches a certain point where there's nothing you do. You can't get them out of that problem. You have to study that and to know um, what are, and part of that is, what are the legal rights of the spouse, the man in relation to the woman and the woman in relation to the man. And understanding what relates, you know, that if you have to separate that if you have children and other issues, if you have wealth, um, how, where do you invest your wealth? These are big topics. I'm always amazed at Muslims that just think that just, oh, I'm living in America, I'm just going to invest as Americans do. How many of those investments are even permissible? And then how many of those are actually pretty questionable? And then how many of those are definitely not good there's a lot that in the financial world is is obviously problematic in many many ways you know obviously because of the, the the global economic system that we are part of but it requires knowledge it requires knowledge um, and if you have property things like writing your will see writing your will it is extremely problematic in the United States of America if someone would to die and not having written their will 
or not having created some type of trust and set up how their estate is going to be distributed after their death. Because if the husband or the wife didn't know it, you don't know the spouse, the other side might not know it as well. And by default, it's not going to be distributed to somebody, that's for sure. And so you don't want to have the very first thing to happen when you enter into the grave, be that all of a sudden that you have sins being committed because of your negligence while you're in the grave. It's serious. These things are serious. right? And that's why when we really think about, we have a lot of work to do as a community, a lot of work. to remain in the religion, and then to die well as Muslims. We have a lot of work to do. And a lot, a lot we, have no, we have a lot of work to do. That's all I have to say. We have a lot of, may Allah give us long lives and good health and strength to do this. You know, if, again, I keep referencing traditional Muslim countries because there's still so much beauty and people might not know what I'm talking about when it comes to these things, but my reference point, I've been to many Muslim countries, but if, uh, my reference point where I spent the most time is in the blessed city of Tadim. When someone dies there, everybody knows what to do. Death there is no thing. When I was there, when I was telling you that like it's a different world, it's a different world. And again, they don't have the means like we have for protection. And the people there are strong. They said, we had a wave of corona. It came through. It took the life of some. Corona is just a means. It was written that they were going to die. Whether it's Corona or something else. He says, whoever's lives it took, it took. And khalas. This is the way they are. Like firm. And even with their own family members. And, you know, may we be like that when we lose a family member. When we lose a loved one. Strength. Death for them, as I remember a friend, an Egyptian friend of mine who's living there, said, death for people here is adi. It's no big deal. Why? Because they already knew they were going to die for so long. And as a society in general, they're preparing for it. And everybody knows what to do. When someone dies, they know exactly what to do. They know how to, wa they know how to wash them. They know exactly what type of shroud. They know exactly all of the sunnahs involved in that. They know where they're going to be buried. And they put in their will, their like last testament, that a portion of their wealth will go towards um, everything that's needed for their burial, including all of the wealth that is needed to conduct what are called tesbihat, which is the process of recitation of the Qur'an and saying tis making tasbih and sending salawat and then donating that reward to them after they've entered into the grave. So you'll see this happening all the time when people die. There will be for a period of like three or four days khatams that are taking place at their grave and people sending salawat and making tasbih and then they're donating the reward to them right when they meet their Lord. And then it's commonly known that they'll like at, when they're doing the janazah that they'll call and ask everybody for forgiveness. Just so that they've written in their will to ask forgiveness from everybody for me. They're prepared. And you hope that even if you don't do that, people will, but they've thought about this. They've worked this out. They know how to live, they know how to die. 
And um, this is why one of the, and there's a story, and there's three graveyards in Tarim. They're all called Bashar. But there's Zanbel, there's Forayt, and there's Akrar. And this, uh, one of them was reciting the verse in the Quran as he was passing through Forayt one time. فَمِنْهُمْ شَقِيُّونَ أَوْ سَعِيدٌ فَمِنْهُمْ شَقِيُّونَ وَسَعِيدٌ And then he heard a voice from the grave. And he said to him that... Uh, that that there's no there's no ashqiyah in this graveyard. He said there's no people of hell in this graveyard, right? And meaning that as a society, mashallah, barakallah, there's a lot of special people. There's a lot of special people buried there, and there's a certain rank of wilaya that if that person's buried anywhere, anyone who's buried in their proximity will receive forgiveness from the blessing of that person. Um, called al kanzia. Anyhow. That this is what we have to learn. So the Fard'ayn knowledge is everything that we need to learn to be able to practice our deen correctly. And so, again, there could be a new circumstance which requires us to learn something new. And we got to get this right. We got to work out how to teach people in this society specifically what it is that they need to know. And then there are a number of things that might not necessarily be an obligation, but they're close to being an obligation. Things like teaching young men and women how to think before they go to college. So that they can know how to deal with what it is that they are going to be facing when they enter into the university. Let alone someone that goes on to get a master's or a PhD, especially in Islamic studies. Um, teaching what people need when they go into corporate America or they take on a career. What are some of the things that they need to navigate that world as that world is? What do people face in medical school? What do people face in law school? What do people face in engineering school and so forth and so on when they're going to get their MBA or whatever? And what are some of the challenges that they're going to have? Preempt that. Give them the knowledge that they need so that they can navigate that. Uh, people that are going to have a vocation and that are going to work in the field of construction or whatever else it is, or own their own business, what are some of the challenges that they will likely find when they enter into these fields? This is of the utmost importance, and all it requires is for us really to research this and to understand what takes place in detail so we can give people detailed knowledge because we're talking general right now, but general is not enough. And I say this Knowing that not just I, we don't have all the answers to these questions yet. People are still doing things, but do you see the problem? Right? And on top of all of that, people are still focused on all these tertiary issues. It's just beyond me. Like the real work, the matters that we're going to be asked about in our grave, we're neglecting. And we're not coming together as a community. We can't overcome our internecine fighting over tertiary issues. Right to, to, to the point where people are so immature that someone who has done a program here before has a particular opinion on that vaccines that someone assumes because they did a program here that that's the official statement of a maqasid on vaccine. Like, what are you talking about? This is so immature. Like, why, where, are, where is the substance in the believers? In focusing on what really needs to be, for we have work to do.
And we need to, and then on top of all of that, think about all the dawah work we have to do. Think about all the people that we know that this message hasn't reached yet. We have no time to waste our time. We all have limited energy. Don't waste your time debating with people. That's the next topic. Very timely. Don't waste your time on Facebook and Instagram. I don't know. Can you even do that? Instagram, I'm a bit out of touch. Whatever. Don't waste your time with that stuff. Focus on doing the work that we need to do to help Muslims that thrive in this country and make contributions that are principled and prepare for the meeting with their Lord. And there's a lot we have to do. So the Fard'ayn, on one hand, is very easy to learn. We just mentioned that it could be at its most basic level in three hours. On the other hand, there are many things, given our circumstances here, that are actually Fard'ayn for us. And this is the explanation why you have a number of different books that say this book is written to cover the Fard'ayn. And many of them are different. And in some books you'll find what you don't find in others. I have in the library here maybe seven or eight books like that. And they differ because of the different circumstances. And one of the best books of, on the Fard'ayn was he passed away recently. May Allah have mercy upon his soul. Sheikh Imad al-Din Abu Hijla. He wrote a book. I think it's called Adur al-Bahiyah, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, that's not the Fard'ayn one. There's a shorter one. Uh, and Najum al-Lamia is his, is his larger book, which is also an amazing book. Uh, may Allah have mercy upon his soul. It's one of the best books I've seen on the Fard'ayn because he's lived in America. And he knew many of the issues that people uh, were facing and that weren't necessarily mentioned as Fard'ayn knowledge in other books. But at this point, all we can do is talk about the principle. That's, this is what the Fard'ayn is. And then we can briefly go over, in general, what that includes when you learn it at the basic level. <clears throat> so when it comes to our Iman, it is sufficient for one to believe in everything brought by the Messenger of Allah Wasallam, And to believe it with absolute conviction free of any doubt. And this is the opinion of Imam Ghazali that you're not obliged to learn the evidences of the theologians. And his proof is the Prophet وسلم, did not require of anything but what we have just mentioned, nor did the first four caliphs, the other prophetic companions, nor others of the early Muslim community who came after them. But if someone has doubts, may Allah protect us, about any of the tenets of faith in which belief is obligatory. And doubt cannot be eliminated except by learning one of the theologian's proofs. Then it is obligatory for him to learn it in order to remove the doubt and acquire the belief in question. It's one of the beauties of our deen. You can, you, you, it's a problem if a parent or a teacher tells a young inquisitive person, don't ask questions, just believe. No. Encourage people to ask. If you can't answer the question, say, I don't know, but I will find someone who will help you. This is important. This is critical. And don't just wing it, because you'll get yourself in more trouble, especially with the upcoming generation. They're smarter than you think, and they're exposed to a lot. You have to know how to answer their questions and to facilitate for them that correct belief. 
So the beauty of our faith is if you don't understand something, you have to ask. It's an obligation to ask. And one of the individual obligations is to have a person or people, knowledgeable people, that you can ask your questions to when you have a question. And nowadays it's actually a blessing that we have something like the internet where you can get a lot of your questions answered online because not everybody in a place like America, especially if they live in the middle of uh, you know, the Midwest somewhere or in a far off place, that, um, uh, that they don't always have people in their local community to answer their questions. So it's as simple as that. We believe in everything that the Prophet ﷺ brought. And Al-Sayyid Amjad translated what's known as the Aqidah uh, Sakran, Imam Abu Bakr Sakran. Um, and um, that uh, we can try to send that out because it's really beneficial. And they used to like to recite that on a daily basis. It takes like about a minute, a minute and a half. And just so that you end your day on that. And if you made any mistakes during the day, you acknowledge that and you end your day reciting that Aqidah. It's a very brief Aqidah that is very general. And then in terms of Islam, our practice, a person is not obliged to learn how to perform ablution, the prayer, and so forth until the act itself is obligatory for him. As for trade, marriage, and so forth, of things not in themselves obligatory, the Imam of the two sanctuaries, Imam Mujawani and his student, Imam Ghazali, and others say that their means and conditions is personally obligatory for anyone who wants to do them. And then Ihsan, as for knowledge of the heart, and again, this is one of the key features of the Book of Knowledge because Imam al-Ghazari includes this as part of the Fard'ayn, meaning familiarity with the illness of the hearts, the illnesses of the heart, such as envy, pride, and the like. Imam al-Ghazari has said that knowledge of their definitions causes remedy and treatment is personally obligatory. No. And then in addition to that the basics of Iman, Islam, and Ihsan. It's also an obligation to have a general knowledge of the halal and the haram. It is obligatory for one to know what is permissible and what is unlawful of food, drink, clothing, and so forth, of things one is unlikely to be able to do without, and likewise for the rulings on treatment of women if one has a wife, and likewise if a woman is married. And this following, this section is taken from the uh, uh, th th this is from Sheikh Noor. This is very beneficial. How much one teach one's children? Imam Shafi and colleagues say that fathers and mothers must teach their children what will be obligatory for them after puberty. The guardian must, obligation, teach the child about purification, prayer, fasting, and so forth, and that fornication, sodomy, theft, drinking, lying, slander, and the like are unlawful, and that he acquires moral responsibility at puberty and what this entails. It has been said that this education is merely recommended, but in fact it is obligatory, as the plain content of its scriptural basis shows, just as it is mandatory for a guardian to wisely manage his charges properly. This is even more important. So that's what we will say about the Fard'ayn, and um, that if you have any questions about that, uh, there's a Q&A, an hour and a half Q&A session that we can discuss, inshallah ta'ala. So, after uh, that discussing the Fard'ayn, and Imam al-Ghazali goes into um, a, lot of the a lot of details there, but we summarized it for you. 
he then goes into a discussion of what is Fard Kifaya. And that Fard Kifaya, Fard is that same word, obligation, and Kifaya, really here's Kifa Yekfi is the root word, which is to suffice. So Kifaya is really sufficiency. We translate it as communal obligation, but the word has dual meaning. Because on one hand, what it means is some people suffice the rest of the community. Yani ha'ula yakfun al-akharin. They suffice the rest. But also, it relates to sufficiency in the sense that whatever the Muslim community needs, everybody has to collectively make sure that they have sufficiency in those things. So sufficiency is right at the heart of what our deen teaches, that Muslims be self-sufficient. And obviously there's a lot that you could say, now look at the state of Muslim countries now, and there's reasons why. Even though we're in a post-colonial world, that, that many of the institutions that preceded are that still there in many ways, or at least remnants of them. Uh, or at least colonized mentalities that are that running different types of institutions. But the problems, nevertheless, are still there. So, communal obligations. And essentially what that means is, these are things that are an obligation upon the community as a whole. And those that have the ability to fulfill those obligations, if they're not fulfilled, they're responsible before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, I want you... So, the reason that Imam al-Azadi, when he talks about beneficial knowledge, first mentions Fard Ayn and Fard Kifaya, is because he wants to hammer into our mindset that should be our approach to knowledge. Okay? So what are we teaching kids from a young age? The vast majority of the things that kids learn in school, I'm going to get myself in trouble by saying this, but it's true, is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. The vast majority of things that we think are so important. I remember reading a story. I don't mean to pick on India, but my wife's part Indian. My kids are part Indian, so I can mention. That's why I mentioned the Midwest as being remote, because I'm from the Midwest. Um, that uh, she decided to study, to leave that something of the sciences. In particular, she didn't really like math. So she went into the humanities. And all of the family members came over to the house. And as if someone died, they were like consoling her and wondering what had happened. Is everything okay? They were doing like, azat, because she left math, right? And I'm not saying that we don't study math. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't study science. But like, if you want the real, like if we want to keep it real, keep it real, how much of that really is important? How much of that, you're not going to be asked about anything of that nature. You're not going to be asked if you can do some fancy equation or not and you know and I was in 
AP Calculus 5 as a senior. I can't even help my 7th grader in his math anymore. Right? Now, I didn't go into engineering. Now, if that's your profession, you're probably going to need it a little bit. But, like, I'm trying to make a point here. The system is set up in a certain way. And the vast majority of what they learn is not going to help them. And especially the frame of how it's taught. Especially the frame of how it's taught. Because secular materialism has permeated all of the sciences. All of the sciences. There is no safety in any department in the university. There's no safety in any department. It is permeated that every single college department. And that if you don't believe me, then we'll have to send you a long reading, reading list. It's very real. And again, we're living in this world. My kids are in school. But it, I cringe inside. It bothers me to my core that knowing that there's so much more for them to learn and this is what they're wasting their time learning. It bothers me at its core. And I'm just being honest with you. And usually it's probably better to speak about these types of matters over dinner in the confines of a home because people don't understand this. They're so embedded in the system. And I've literally seen it like on the verge of almost like worshiping Western institutions. Like, like I've seen stuff that like I'm like, I just don't get it. Right? I don't get it. Right? In the end, who cares? if your kid goes to Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Oxford or wherever, it doesn't matter if they're not a good person, if they don't believe in Allah, if they're not a good person, none of that's going to benefit them in the Akhir at all. At all. And again, I know people are saying, well, how are we going to make contributions in our society? How are we going to do it? Right? Again, I'm not saying that we don't go to the university. Right? I'm just saying at very least we have to have the right perspective. We've got to have the right perspective. And you have to be careful about what you're exposed to. And that that's at very least. But our frame is one of Fard Ain, Fard Kifaya. And many of those things that I just mentioned are Fard Kifaya. But who's approaching it from that frame? So I want to share this because this is deep. What Imam Al-Zadi's definition of the Fard Kifaya does is that he gives us, he opens up a door for virtually most careers that someone could possibly have can be considered to be from the Fard Kifaya. So I know I just was going from one angle, now I'm coming back from another. If you're going to do it, do it with the intention of fulfilling the Fard Kifaya. Make your whole life dean. And then have the courage to know that the knowledge that you're getting is primarily vocational don't give it more weight than it really is right even if you're becoming that you know you're going to be researching this or that or doing whatever it is that you're doing that approach it as a vocation don't be bewildered by the knowledge that is before you know that we have the truth in the quran and the sunnah of our prophet and the standard whereby which we can understand anything and then learn how to do that and learn how to Train yourself to understand underlying assumptions. Learn how to then not fall into some of the philosophical traps. Learn how to think that 
um, I don't necessarily like the word critically, but Islamically critically, Islamically critical, if you will. Yani, that learn how to think how we are taught to think as believers. And that's not easy. That takes time. That takes time. Because that it's like sorcery when you get into that many of these classrooms and it sweeps people off of their feet very quickly, very quickly. So this is what he says. He says, فَكُلُّ عِلْمٍ لَا يُسْتَغْنَ عَنْهُ فِي قِوَامِ إِمُورِ الدُّنْيَا is Fard Kifaya. Every knowledge that is needed for the subsistence of the affairs of the world, in order for the dunya to function, all of those knowledges are Fard Kifaya. Katib, like medicine. He says, because this is a necessity in order to preserve the body, like hisab, mathematics, because it's necessity for it's a necessity for your interactions and dividing estates and so forth and so on. And he says that don't be amazed that I'm saying medicine and mathematics are from the Fard Kifaya. He said that the Usul Sina'at the foundational crafts are also all from communal obligations. Farming, weaving. He says even hijama, bloodletting. Look at the door he just opened. Everything that the society needs to function is a fard kifaya. So by focusing on imtariq al-akhir, we're not saying that you go live in a cave and don't interact in the world. That's not what we're saying. No, but what we're saying is, have strong iman, know your deen, think well, give precedence to and then enter into one of these crafts or vocations or trades or professions with the right intention and do it for the sake of Allah Ta'ala, not for the sake of money or fame or because someone else wants you to do it. Huge difference. And if you've already done it, change your intention. It's not too late. Change your intention. And um, this is far-reaching, you know, and I, I really hope that we will have a multiple, not just one, multiple people learn how to really teach Muslims how they should approach their careers. Because it's happening right now, already. But most people are thinking in a worldly sense. No, connect your career to the dean from the beginning. Get people thinking of a career track for the right reasons from the beginning. Teach young men how to be men. Teach young women how to be women. Give them what they need. Teach them to be responsible and to learn for the right reasons, and not to ask people for things, and to stand on their own two feet, and to contribute to society, and to contribute to their trade, or their craft, or their profession, or whatever else, and to be principled at all costs, and to do it to fulfill the Fard Kifaya. That's very different than just going with the flow, the way that most people do. And I know it's a fitna 
because people come from societies where there's not much upward social mobility and they come here and if you have education in the United States that anyone for the most part can be successful and you can have people from a very poor background come here in one generation that become educated and live a very that uh, comfortable lifestyle but in the process most of them lose their deen when that happens so is it worth it was it better for them to remain poor in a village back home or lose your deen or lose the deen of your children when you come here and again some people had circumstances where they were forced to come here from war-torn countries and things like that and that's not what I'm talking about but you and I know we can't run away from these realities we know what's happening to our children even when you try to raise them well we know the forces that are pulling them let alone that if you neglect them if you do everything you can possibly do ya latif it still reaches them let alone if you just feed them to the wolves what happens this is very real this is very very real but this is what will save us giving purpose to everything that is that we do so this right here even though it's on like a half a page could turn into an entire that manual it can turn it could turn into an entire consulting like a, a you know like a, a consultancy uh, firm consulting firm that could give young people advice for the future we have everything that we need but we just have to do it so that's how he starts but this is our frame we should be thinking far to ain at any given time is there any knowledge that i need to learn and give precedence to that number two far kifaya what else does the society need how can i help people what do people really need and if you start thinking like that from a religious perspective you'd be surprised at how creative that you could be, be you'd be surprised at the contributions you could make that there's amazing things that could be done but our minds are stagnant because we're not trained properly the light of knowledge oftentimes that doesn't exist because our entire that you know years and years and years have been studied that we've been studying textbooks right that that you know we don't remember even what we studied and it's dulled our minds and we've lost our unique creativity as a result so having said all of that um, and there's a lot more that could be said it's in this chapter that and I'm all in on this and I'm getting signals over there so I'll try to wrap this up in a few minutes we both indicated it said Mjed and the folk here and I'll just mention it now because it's so important that one of the things that Imam Ozadi does is he he says he mentions the great scholars who came before us some of the greatest the one we think of Imam Abu Hanifa Imam Malik Imam Shafi'i Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal that uh, Imam Layth ibn Sa'ad and he says about all of them Imam Sufyan al-Thawri he said every one of them in addition to their fiqh their knowledge of the deen he said they had four traits and this is very practical because in this case it's the scholars of the deen but you could also say a doctor an engineer or a lawyer or whatever else someone's doing their profession these other traits we should all have whatever it is that we're doing 
He says, every one of them kana abidan, zahidan, aliman bi ulum al-akhirah, wa muridin bi fiqhi wajhullahi ta'ala. Every single one of them was a worshiper. They worshipped Allah. Every single one of them was a zahid, that they turned away from the world. And it doesn't mean that they didn't wear nice clothes or anything like that, but they were detached. And they knew the ulum of the akhirah, the sciences of the afterlife. And they wanted the noble countenance of Allah through their scholarly contributions, i.e. they were sincere. So worship, renunciation, knowledge of the spiritual path, of the sciences of the hereafter, and sincerity. That has to go along with any contribution that anyone makes in whatever field that they're in, whether it's specifically a religious field or whatever else it is that they are doing. And then I'll just end with a quote of Imam Ghazali. We had posted this, but it's so important. I'll just say it again. So he says, وَبِالْجُمْلَةِ And this is kind of how he summarizes you know, these these. These, these two chapters that we just kind of dipped into and tried to sum and, and, and to summarize for you. So he says this towards the end. And in general, and you could probably translate that as the way of the intelligent is what? And is to consider yourself alone in the world with Allah. And before you is death, judgment, reckoning, paradise, and the fire. Think very carefully about what concerns you in relation to what is right before you. And leave everything else. And he says, peace. Ma'asara. This is Imam Ghazali. Think about that. We should all, before we go to bed tonight, think about that. No one else exists in the world. You are alone with Allah. And right before us, at any moment, we have no idea. Death, judgment, reckoning, paradise, the fire. And then, knowing that reality, he says, Ta'ammal. Ponder. Think deeply, think very carefully about what concerns you in relation to what is right before you. What would we be thinking about if we were really aware of those realities? Leave everything else. And um, this is how Imam Ghazali thinks. And the amazing thing is, is that look at the description of the Sahaba. Look at how they were. Look at what they spent their time doing. And they changed the world. No one changed the world like the Sahaba of Rasulullah. You and I are all in the Barakah. Islamic, we like to speak of Islamic civilization and everything we contributed 
and all of the architectural contributions and all of the... And yes, of course, we made all different types of contributions. It's one of the greatest civilizations when we talk about civilization in human history. We know it's the greatest umman history, but I'm saying if you just look at it as like civilization versus civilization, there's a lot of civilizations that have made a lot of contributions to the world. Right? But where did it all come from? Right? Where did our... Asked, where did our contributions in astronomy come from? Right. It all came from Dean. It all came from Dean. Because we needed to find the Qibla. We needed to find the direction of prayer. All of the major contributions that we made stem from our Dean. The Dean is the source of all of that. If you remove that, you don't, how you talk about the Persian literary tradition. Where did that come from? That came from people becoming awliya and receiving inspiration such that their language now was very different than it ever been in previous history. The same thing in Turkish history, the same thing in that all, anywhere that Islam went. Where'd that come from? That came from the deen. So we're obviously not against civilization. But we need to understand correctly when we talk about these things. We don't talk about them devoid of the religious principles that underlie him. This is what Imam Ghazali is teaching us. And if we talk about Islam in this country, it is going to spread on the hands of people who understand this. It is going to spread on the hands of people that know their Lord, subhanahu wa ta'ala. If it goes civilization for civilization, that's not what these people want to hear. But if these people that meet people who are people of Allah and have dedicated their life to Allah despite their skin color, despite how much money they earn, none of those things are going to matter. Their hearts will be transformed by meeting these people and I have seen this with my own eyes, with people in my own family. They met different people, but they never affected them the way that People that live in a very different way and in a very different part of the world affected them in one gathering in a very short period of time because of the state of their heart. This is what Imam Ghazali is calling us to. And if we have that, engage at every level. If you're principled and you know your deen, whatever way that you want to serve and that Allah has opened up the door for you to serve, whatever you feel passionate about, whatever you do, that the, whatever that you can offer the world that other people can't offer the world, and what's practical for you to do, wherever those three circles meet, serve and make your unique gift. Then share, contribute according to your unique gift, but based on this. And so this is what, inshallah ta'ala, we want to understand and to live. ta'ala. I know I've gone way over. Actually, I'll save this. We'll start the next session. This is a taken from the Book of Assistance, Imam al-Ghazadi's definition of beneficial knowledge. Uh, I will mention this tomorrow morning in the start of the session, inshallah ta'ala, because it's very, very useful. Uh, and then we'll, we, we will uh, go from there, inshallah. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.